0: To your podcast. So I don't know if you remember the, the first um, the first session we had, the, the session we did on creation, why did God create us, all of that. We we talked a little bit about Genesis and, and I kind of went on a side point and just started talking about Genesis anyway, how it was written and things like that. And I know some of you guys it really jumped out at you the, the importance of what the Bible is and how it's written, and, and when we understand that we can read. It more clearly and, and god can speak to us through it more clearly when we understand who was it written to what was it what was the purpose of that specific book or letter or whatever um so i wa- kind of want to talk about that a little bit more this morning okay i want to I talk about the bible as as um as, as we have it today um and and what does that mean to us? What, what does it look like? And how do we approach the Bible? Because we talked about how a lot of the time we were taught to approach the Bible, just like open it up and just read it and just take whatever it says and just go, right, I need to apply it to my life and wander off and just do what it says. And, um, and sometimes that can be really messed up depending on what you're reading. You know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff in there you really shouldn't apply. You know, I really would strongly advise if you want to sweep a, a woman off her feet don't go get her dad 200 foreskins you know i mean that's really bad advice on the whole in this culture I'm not even sure if it was good advice in that culture if i'm honest with you i think that was pretty messed up but uh whatever yeah so there you go sam yes yeah but you know we, we often fail to realize that the bible is um it's not a book it's a collection of 66 different pieces of literature um, written, honestly, probably by several hundred people, um, possibly thousands of people. Um, in fact, they had entire schools in Judaism that wrote and, and edited and, and collated some of these books over hundreds of years. Um, and so you look at things like Leviticus and Numbers, they were written over several hundred years. They were, uh, they had a core principal text, but they were extrapolated and, 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 and finalized over a long period of time by something called a school. And a school um, in that culture, it wasn't sort of something you go to to learn. It was, a, it was a group of scholars, a group of people that were devoted to trying to figure out what is God saying to us and what does it mean and how do we apply this to our lives. And um, in the Bible, we, we actually find that a lot of the texts are written by different um, groups of people. You know, Some is written by priests, some is written by more Um, the the poets the philosophers some are written by the the prophets and and oftentimes one book will have been influenced by many of these groups in something called a school Um, and so it's really important we understand this you know things like um genesis you know and exodus and and numbers and these things we 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 call these in fact in germany they're called the books of moses right book of moses one two three four and five well if we're going to be honest moses didn't write that we know that no one on the planet thinks he did except we all kind of just take it at face value. Oh, yeah, Moses wrote those. But he didn't. Like, I mean, it talks about his death. It talks about times after his death. And, um, and frankly, Moses probably didn't have time to sit down and write about it. And, and, and the thing is, half of this stuff was written a good several thousand years after Moses. You know, we talked about Genesis. You know, like we think of Genesis as like this, like, gosh, the, the creation story, that's so old, right? Whether you believe in a really young earth or an extremely old earth. But we, we failed to realize that Genesis was written about 3,600 years ago. It's not that long ago, really. You know, the earth was certainly created before that. Um, and so um, even the, the oldest book, which Genesis is not the oldest book, Job is actually, um, they're, they're, they're all quite new books. And actually, most of these stories that we have, Genesis, Exodus, they, they'd happened. And they'd been told these stories for hundreds, if not thousands of years before someone sat down and went right let's write this down right which you got to think is a bit interesting actually if, if nothing else um especially because i mean they had stories and they had people writing stories down for at least 1500 1600 years before that people were writing stories so it's fascinating to me that the jews at no point thought "Well, we should write down the, this story you know like but instead they're just you know just telling the stories or writing. and that, that was their culture as well you know it's a a very oral culture, the oral tradition. They would share these stories and they would talk uh, these stories all the time. Um, and so I, I want us to, um, I, what I want to do is I just, want to, I just want to challenge the way you approach scripture, the way you think of scripture, because honestly, most of the time, our need to defend scripture and like keep scripture up in a high place and not challenge it in any way actually stops us being able to read it for what it is. And so we talked about that with Genesis. You know, this, this idea that Genesis is God's uh, account of how he created the world, um, how he went about creating the world. Well, actually, our need to defend that. So people go, well, you can't have evolution or you can't have an old earth that's, you know, more than ten thousand years old or whatever, because the Bible says, you know, that if I add up all the people, it's only ten thousand years old. Or, you know, the Bible says it was greater than seven days or whatever. People that hold that so tightly end up missing all these little things we talked about in the first day. You know, the, the, the beautiful poetry that's in it and the contrasts that are made and, and actually even the contrast that they have in comparison to the other creation stories of their day. Um, so, does it have to? Does it have to mean we don't take that as literal, and that God didn't create the Earth in seven days or ten days? Not necessarily. He could have done that as well, but that's not what the author of Genesis is writing about. And so again, we have to go: Why was Genesis written? Who was it written to? Because no one at that point in time was going, "How old is the Earth?" No one, no one at all, was thinking that, and no one was thinking. How many days did it take God to create the earth? No one thought that at all. So the fact that there's days in there, it could be that it's that's how many days it took, but we've got to remember there was no such thing as a day until like you know several days in, because it wasn't even a sun, right? You know, I mean, like, come on, right? But it could be that there was seven days and that's how long it took God, or six days technically, I guess. But it's much more likely, especially when we start to look at the seven days that they're talking about contrasts and and they're they're putting um, things together, they're pairings. And it's part of that um, heptactic structure that we talked about, the seven things, you know? So constantly you've got seven words in the first verse, 14 words in the second verse. God said it's good seven times. uh, um, It talks about completion 35 times. You know, all these multiples of seven, maybe that's why there's seven days. I, I don't know, but what I'm saying is we should look at this primarily as how was it written and who was it written for? Not, what does this mean to me three and a half thousand years later who probably has questions that they never had once. Um, And so I'm trying to answer questions that the book was never written to answer. And it may answer some of them. You know, God is really amazing at how he put his scripture together that throughout the ages it's relevant. It answers our questions, absolutely. But first and foremost, we should probably go, what questions were the audience asking? And so with Genesis, we talked about how the questions they were asking was, can we trust God? Is God a good God? Because the creation stories that existed beforehand were full of many gods that were good, bad, and different, and they changed. Some gods that started good would become bad, and some were bad would become good, and they would kill the other god, and the gods would fight with each other, they would kill each other. God's, and, and so it was, like, is God good? And I'll tell you what, when you start to go, that's the question that's being asked, and you open up Genesis 1, you go, oh, yeah, he's good because every single verse is laced with god is good everything he does is out of his goodness everything he does is out of an abundance a creativity he's good he's pure he's perfect which is not the story in the original creation story that we talked about the enuma Elish, which is the gods we don't know where the gods are at we don't even know which god is in charge because it changes every day you know i mean the gods are all over the place And this is a a God who speaks peace into every, every situation. A God that is always in control. A God who is on his own. It's just God. You know, there's no vying for control in heaven because it's just God. That's it. And so it answers these questions. Actually, there isn't many gods. There's one God. And the gods aren't in turmoil. He's at peace. And they're not good and evil and, you know, a bit all over the place. They're always good. He's always good. And things aren't in chaos. It's perfect. It's full of peace. And then the, the, the other question is, well, why did he create us? Why, why are we here, right? And so you have an initial creation story in Enuma Elish, um, and the epic Gilgamesh goes into this even deeper. The initial creation story is we were created as slaves because the gods needed people to do their work for them. They got bored doing their own work and were, we need some slaves. So they created people. And it's not um, particularly the most encouraging thought to be like, the purpose I'm on this planet for is to just be a slave for some gods, especially if the gods are not particularly good in most days, you know? Um, And yet, God answers this question with such a different um, answer. You know, in Genesis, we see a very different response, which is God creates us because he loves to create. That's what he does. And he creates us as partners, not as slaves. He creates us in his image and likeness. And we talked about how image and likeness, that that was a term used for... um, men on the earth that had become gods. So people like Pharaoh and the powerful kings, they were the only people in that day that were said to have image and likeness of God. And so, you know, Pharaoh would be bestowed by Ra, the image and likeness, and he'd be raised up and become a god in the sight of all men. And so when we have our story, Genesis 1, it says, and man and woman were created in the image and likeness of God. It says, men and women are created like God. They're gods on earth. And you're like, whoa. But well, that's, a, that's a big statement. That's a bold statement that we have, um, we have something of divinity. We're not slaves. We're powerful. We're created to create in his image, to, to, to be his hands and his feet on this planet, to, to, to be um, his voice piece and his, um, his action on, on this planet. And, and he even asks us that as well, doesn't he? He says, look, I've given you this. earth, steward it. Be fruitful and multiply within it. But he gives us the earth. And so it's really important we read the context, isn't it? But what's interesting is um, we find as, as the story goes on, so that's really the primary, primarily that's the first creation story, which is Genesis 1-1 through to about Genesis 2-14 uh, or so, okay? That's kind of the first creation story, and that answers that um, thing. And so remember we talked yesterday about chapters and verses and how that's, they were never there, you know? So we should be careful to assume when we see a new chapter, it's a new section or something, we should always read it as a flowing piece, okay, but in saying that Genesis was written in two different pieces, um, and so the first piece was genesis one one through to genesis two fourteen and as we um, look at Genesis uh, two onwards, we see the writing style changes the we can we can tell the authorship changes, the age of the text is different as well it 's much much newer um, and so we can see. That actually this is something that was then added as an additional okay let's talk more about creation and our origins and how things began because the initial answer is okay god is good we're here we're good and we're part of his creation and the issue with that was if god is so good and we're so good why is everything so crap right that's kind of a question you got to ask right God's good. He created everything good. It's wonderful. It's amazing. And you are amazing. And He's created you perfectly in His image and likeness. You're like mini gods. And everyone goes. Uh, have you seen the ten o'clock news? This place is a disaster, right? So this is the question that people have. If, if, if everything's been so good, then why is everything not so good? And and this is this is the 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 dialogue that Genesis two fourteen onwards into about Genesis eleven or so. This is what it starts to to deal with. Well, if everything was created perfect and we're perfect, why is nothing perfect? Why is there such a mess? And so in that we see Genesis 2, we see the story shift and we see the introduction of man. And so while God's already created Adam and Eve and and man uh, or mankind in the first story, he goes into deeper detail about how he created them and, and, and what he desired for them. And so he talks about how he desires them not to eat a tree of knowledge of good and evil, but to eat from the tree of life. He talks about how he walks with them in the in the day. And he talks about this this journey and this story that mankind goes on. And he talks about mankind ultimately choosing to rebel, choosing not to want to walk with God, not to walk with him in the in the way of life, but instead to, to go after the knowledge of the good and evil they want to know what's right and wrong and try and do it themselves and then we see it that unfold that story of the Cain and Abel's and the, all these different um people we see this the story unfold about man constantly trying to do things themselves and work on it themselves we see the the contrast of um uh, even Cain and Abel and their sacrifices one sacrifice is something that is naturally brought forth without any effort it, it's it's a lamb you know you you can't make a lamb the sheep make a lamb you know and he just gets something that is already prepared already come about and sacrifices the other works hard and toils and labors to make grain and then sacrifices that and it's not pleasing and so we already see this this um this concept very early on that god doesn't want you trying to do things yourself in your own efforts in your own strength he's wanting you to just take what, what he's providing and, and, and walk in his gift of life and his easy restful um, way and so even post fall post the garden we see this dialogue with God and we see it glorified in, in many um, figures as well he, he really glorifies certain figures in this early um, passage Enoch would be a great example you know these people that, that, that he walked with God and because of that he went straight up into heaven you know and so it, it's really and and again we, we talk this it's really important. As we study Genesis, we look at Genesis. We understand that Genesis is mythology. It's it's now, again mythology does not mean not real. Mythology is means um, it's poetic and it's a story form. Okay, so um, you know when we look at like you know um, like Exodus isn't mythology. It's much more historical. Deep down, this is this, and this, and this, and this, and this. and It's much more detail-orientated. Um, Genesis isn't detail-orientated. It's told in a more poetic form, okay? Um, and so um, understand me when I say it's myth, myth. Myth has never meant not real, okay? Myth can be not real, and myth can be real. But myth itself is—it means uh, it's, it's a poetic story, the way it's the way it's told. Okay, and so as we read through Genesis, we can see a lot of that—that that this poetic element. We should never ignore that. We should never fall into the trap of reading it as a history book, as a as as a, a detail orientated history book, because it's not detail orientated. And we talked about that creation. Gosh, I would give my left arm for another four pages on how God created the earth. I'd love to know. I'd love all the details. that would be great. But. It's not. It's not detail oriented. He's just like, oh, yeah, I created some sky, create created some sea, then we get the land. And it's like, ah, oh, I want to know more. I like what a David Attenborough kind of like, you know, documentary style, you know, give me something good. And instead, you know, we, we have to. Um, this is the problem with, uh, with an ancient document that is written to an ancient people um, who are not like us. That the Jews were not detail oriented people. They didn't care about the details. And actually, they frequently exaggerate the details and sometimes they change the details to make a point so actually even they'll change the numbers of things because numbers have a significance so it's like well there are 12 people but if we say there was 11 11 means this so we'll just say 11 right you're like you you can't you can't do that right because our western modern way of telling history we go no you you give me the exact details exactly how it was that's how i understand things you know if i imagine we told a, a story about um I don't know something. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think. Okay, so we, we tell a story about World War Two. Okay, so something we, we're all we all understand, and we we have deep invested. His, you know, that's that's our history. That's Germany's history. That's England's history. We want the facts, the details. You know, give me the details. And imagine someone recorded the story, but just changed half the details. So it was—it made more of a a moral point, you know. And so they changed who was attacking who, or the numbers of people that died. Or you know, can you imagine? We'd be really like—you can't do that. But that's the kind of storytelling that happens in mythology. Okay. So what I'm saying here is, I—I'm not saying I do not believe that Genesis is accurate. But what I'm saying is, we should always read genesis to uh, in, in with an understanding that primarily it's written as a mythological uh, w- with a mythological underpinning so it's, it's written in poetry the numbers have very strong significance even the ages people live to is very important and so um a lot of people actually really stumble and go well it could never be true because someone in the bible lived to 737 years or whatever and it's like okay if that's a major deal for you I- i'll let you believe it that they didn't like it's not a big deal for me because this is a this is the way they wrote they wrote and they would change numbers so maybe they changed number maybe the guy lived to 38 and he died early i don't know right but what i believe is he lived that long like personally but i'm saying we have to understand this is a mythological this is the way they wrote and so we should never and certainly when they decide to put in that kind of detail it means something because they're not detail oriented people they didn't really care how long people lived but well, that wasn't that important, but they're using these numbers to put across important points. Again, the days, the, the days that the earth was created, all these things are really important. But what I, what I want to um, highlight here, okay, so, um, and then we're going to move on from this, because I know this is a lot of recap from what we we're talking about on um, whatever day was the first day, Tuesday. Um, one of the primary things that Genesis is, especially Genesis 1 through 11, these two initial creation stories. Um, it's a polemic. It's, it's something that challenges the current understanding, okay? And so we look at Anuma Elish, we look at the Epic of Gilgamesh, and what we find is actually our story is largely a copy of the story that already exists. And that's really challenging to a lot of Christians because we think our story is, um, you know, this divinely inspired story that came out of nowhere and Right after Adam and Eve were created, we just had Genesis, right? But Genesis is much, much later, isn't it? Um, and what actually happens is while, while, you know, I believe Genesis is 100% true and accurate, but what I believe is we should never ignore that Genesis was written in a way that is very specific, okay? So the, 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 the content is true, but what's most important is actually the way the content is put across because it's very specific. And so what's happened is we have a, an initial story that everyone in the known world knows, the creation story, Enuma Elish. In the beginning, there were the gods and the gods created and they went to war and all this different stuff. The gods created man as slave, you know, all these different um, things. And all of a sudden, we have this new story emerge. And Genesis is the first um, origin of a, a monotheistic belief. It's the first time we see throughout the known world a singular god. There never has been this belief, ever. And so this is like, whoa, groundbreaking. And so the fact that it begins in the beginning was God is huge, especially because the exact same phrasing was used in Enuma Elish. In the beginning, there were gods. So it's exactly the same phrase from the most up high, from the most beginning, from the most uh, origins were gods. And, and our, our passage starts from the most high was God. It's exactly the same phrase. And so you can imagine they're sitting around the campfire and they're like, let's talk about creation. And everyone's like, yeah, I love the creation story, right? Because they only had like 10 stories they just keep told. I don't know, like, right? But they actually, it does seem a bit like that. They just like tell all these stories and um, there wasn't that many back then. I don't know. Um, so they're sitting around and they're just going, all right, let's talk about creation again. And they're like, Oh yeah, I love this. And really interesting. And then they would have these philosophical conversations about the gods and why are we here and things. And so someone sits down and goes, in the beginning was God. That's, I mean, already you've just ruined everyone's night. I mean, the whole night is about to blow up, right? Because it's like, well, what, which which one, right? Which one? The God of the valley, the God of the mountain, the God of the sea, like, because these are all the gods they had, right? They had hundreds of gods. You can't say in the beginning was God. Like, which one? No, 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 there are no other gods. It's just one God. What? <laughs> right, we've not even got into the full verse one and we're already like uproar, you know? And then we have these, 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 um, these uh, contrasts all the way through genesis we see contrast between the current story and our story god's story and god comes along and goes this is what you believe let me challenge it let me let me confront it let me let me throw right in its face and actually even use your language use use your story and tweak it and form it and mess with it so that it really just jabs you right where it hurts and, and your preconceived notions really get challenged We've seen things like the flood the flood is a fascinating example as well right so you have in genesis um six um the flood, um but actually we already had the flood story a thousand years before that was the flood story before we had written it at least you know plus maybe a thousand five hundred years before it epic gilgamesh epic gilgamesh you have the gods they wake up one morning really annoyed because they haven't had a good night's sleep because all night people were keeping them up and were noisy and loud right but again this is mythology this is the way they write this is the way they communicate this is the way they they put across concepts and ideas okay and so in it we have the concept that gods are frustrated with people they're annoying they're they're not living up to their expectations they're not particularly good slaves and so what happens is this annoying group of uh, uh this, these gods that are annoyed with people because they make too much noise go that's it Let's just kill them all right and so they decide to flood the earth and wipe out everyone and in it someone uh tricks the gods um, by getting some inside information from one of the gods. He gets some inside information and, and he builds a little raft and he you know sails about. And, um, and there's even significance in the amount of time he sails and he stays on the sea and then finally he finds land and things like that. And then all of a sudden, where everyone knows his story, everyone knows the explanation for why there was a flood. And again, what you believe about the, the physical flood is actually in many ways irrelevant. It doesn't really matter, okay? So there there was a flood in that region, certainly, um, in a certain period of time. There has been worldwide floods, I mean, post-Ice Age and things. I mean, there's been floods at different times, and we don't know if one of them specifically is the one that we're talking about in the Bible. It's very hard to pinpoint times when a text was written so much after whenever it did happen, you know? Um, So again, I believe there was a flood, but if you don't believe there was a flood, it actually has no bearing whatsoever because... What are we reading this passage for? We're not reading it for historical purposes. I'm not reading it to go, oh yeah, one day God flooded the earth. The end. Well, I am a changed person. Right? I mean, not in the slightest. What am I reading it for? I'm reading it for... What does God? How does God relate to people? Why? Why does He do things? Why does He make decisions? How does? How? What is our obligation as humans to respond to that? What? How can we change God's mind? How can we? How can we um, negotiate with God? And these are the. These are the motives and the themes of Genesis, right? Whether a flood existed or not is kind of irrelevant. I'd like to know, and I believe there was one, and I've looked at evidence, and I would say it was probably the the one that it surrounded that mesopotamian area at that time period you know about um four and a half five thousand years ago roughly and um, that's what i would believe that the stories are about <laughs> this flood that that flood but if there wasn't even a flood ever are we gonna go oh I'll throw the bible out or just go actually well they're writing to make a point anyway what we find is we find all of a sudden the authors of genesis they sit down and go let's write our story about the flood Let's write what God has to say about the flood. That flood that happened, what's God say about it? Because what we currently have as an explanation for the floods. That doesn't sound like our God. And so we, we find God's interpretation of that. And God's interpretation is, I wasn't just like some schizophrenic psychopath. It's a, I, I value purity. I value holiness. I value righteousness. And, and the world was getting worse and worse and worse. And it was getting corrupted. And I, I, I couldn't do that. I needed to maintain um, holiness and, and righteousness. And so it, it, it talks of a God who values righteousness, holiness, goodness, purity, perfection. And so again, these motives of Genesis creation story continuing. Um, and, and you know what? It's still kind of scary to me and I'm not sure it's the best picture of God. I don't know if I can see Jesus killing everyone on earth just because he's like, well, they're not good enough, right? Because in fact, he kind of did the opposite, right? But But so it's still not to me the most encouraging story ever. But it's a lot more encouraging than one day God woke up and went, oh, I had a terrible night's sleep. I'm going to kill everyone. That is a really discouraging story, right? Like, I mean, let's be honest. (laughs) Um, And so what we find is, is, again, it's a polemic. It's, It's challenging the current story of the day and going, well, what if God isn't just some grumpy guy that doesn't get a lot of sleep? What if God is a pure, holy, righteous God that has earth and mankind's best intentions at heart? That's a good question to be challenged with. And so we see this going on and on. And as, as we read through scripture, we see more and more um, this constant challenging of to the current day's norms. And so as we continue on in, in Genesis, we see the father of faith, Abraham, right? Abraham's the first Jew, right? And we, and we talked about that, I think, on Tuesday as well. We forget Abraham's the first Jew. All the, all the people throughout, they're not Jews. They're just people, And we forget that the whole world exists before God picks anyone. Like, I mean, there's there's probably thousands, tens of thousands, I don't know. Like, you know, I mean, it's very hard to do this when we have the whole balancing, teetering, totter thing of, like, dating things anyway. But there's a lot of people on earth at this point, okay? And there's cities being established and all sorts of different stuff. Um, And what we find is in the midst of all of this, there's already many religions, Like religion isn't like something God invented, you know? There was a a lot of religions already existing before Abraham becomes the first Jew. So Judaism is not the first religion, um, and it certainly isn't the last religion. It's just a religion in the mix of many, many religions. And what happens is Abraham, this first Jew chosen by God, God shows up and says, Abraham, I want you to come with me. He grew up in a very um, specific type of environment that we really have no context for you know what i mean we, we really don't understand that world um if we go back and we look at archaeological records we look at historical archives and, and writings of the time and things like that we find that it was a messed up time to be alive which to be honest with you pretty much all times apart from like now were pretty messed up and that is probably pretty messed up but it's a lot better than it's ever been you know what i mean like times get bad you go back in time and things are not good a lot of people go Oh, gosh, you know, the world's falling apart. You know, gosh, it's not like the old days. What old days do you want to live in? Do you want to live in the the, the days where pretty much if you're female, you would get raped? If you're a guy, you'd probably be a slave. You know, I mean, like pretty much everywhere in the world has been horrible to live. Almost all of history. Like there's no beautiful, wonderful, great times to live. Would you like to be an early Christian? Would you like to be like have your legs cut off, stuck on a pole and set on fire to be a torch in Nero's garden? That sounds lovely you know like i mean there's no good time to be alive when we look back in the past and today is pretty dang good okay and we go oh wow the 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 advances of homosexuality it's taking over the well actually did you know that homosexuality was part of the culture from most of history and so actually we look at the greco roman uh culture that that was there for over seven eight hundred years it was actually part of their practice that they would have homosexual relations with young boys that was just part of their practice and so you know like we look at this and go well actually yeah okay there's a few gay people but you know what it's not actually something that's mandated upon us to rape young boys that's that's pretty good i'd say that's an advancement i'd say we're moving forward for the most part you know like and so we 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 talk about how all the old days when it was perfect unless you're talking about adam and eve and even then they screwed up didn't they um like the old days weren't so great you know i mean they really weren't um and so but we, we look at this time period in particular, this this early Genesis period, um, you know, pretty much all of Genesis really, and pretty much most of the Old Testament, we see a really um archaic, stone agey, kind of really messed up approach to religion. Um, only messed up because we, we we are we have all this uh hindsight, you know, we can look back and go, Oh wow, what a bunch of idiots. But if you think about it, they didn't have science. They didn't have, like, math. They didn't have these these things that helped them explain, um, you know, astrology and all these things. They were so rudimentary, so basic. I mean, we're talking very early on civilization. People didn't understand how anything worked. I mean, really. I mean, we're talking, this is the, the people that, that, you know, they didn't even have, like, irrigation for, for farmland yet. I mean, they had nothing. They, they're really, like, kind of shooting from the hip and just hoping things work out. You know, they, they would... Um, have no idea how um how stuff grew and to be fair we still don't really fully understand how things turn from a seed into something else you know it's it's still quite a magical incredible thing that we can't recreate in some sense but uh you know like they they didn't really understand like stuff you put a seed in the ground and like you wait like a year or six months or whatever and then it grows into food it's amazing if you put some of that food back in the ground it will grow into more food but you know what sometimes you put the seed in the ground and nothing happens i don't know right and then after many years they start to go okay so when it rains a certain amount and it's sunny a certain amount the food grows If it doesn't rain at all food doesn't grow but if it rains a lot and there's no sun food doesn't grow so okay it's probably something to do with the sun and the rain okay rain god <laughs> right right i mean because they, they, they don't know they can't control the rain they can't control the sun they can't make the food grow i mean and, and so like but this is the kind of thing we're talking about. They, they don't know how food grows out of the ground. You know, it's like the whole thing of, like, who was the first person to drink milk, right? I mean, from a cow. Like, you got, you're talking, this is a time of experimentation, okay? This is a time of people going, oh, it's not bad. Right? But who's sitting doing this stuff, you know? I mean, I don't know, right? Um, and it's the same thing. Like, who's, who's planting crops for years on end, trying to figure out why is this working sometimes and not the other times, right? And, and, and this goes into every area of life. And they had gods for everything. I mean, it got completely out of hand. If, if, if you know, we look at it, there's gods for everything. There's gods for mountains, for valleys, for rivers, for seas, for rain, for sun, for stars, for night, for day, for, you know, balmy days, for nice warm days. I mean, they had sun gods, they had gods for everything, you know. Um, really did, the god of health, the god of sickness, the god of this, the god of, I mean, they had gods for everything, gods for cows, gods for sheep, gods for, I mean, not even like lump them up to the god of cattle, but no, let's break it down to everything, you know, I mean, they're gods for everything, um, and we notice, you know, you go to a natural history museum or something like that, and you, you know, you'll see all the different gods that people worshipped and things like that, and that is mostly in actually quite um, formed civilizations, like Egyptian civilizations, or your Rome, or your Greek these are quite modern civilizations. You go further back, and there's way more gods because there's way more mystery, there's way more confusion. They they understand even less. And what happened is that they they, they would start to um, to create gods basically for anything that's mysterious, you know. And and the truth is, we kind of we kind of do the same thing, at some level. Uh, let's, let's put that to the side. Actually, that's way too philosophical. Um, <laughs> but but they would create gods for anything they didn't understand and. Ultimately, they didn't understand much at all. Um, and so how do you please the God of rain or the God of sun? You know, if you're starting to starve and you have no food, how do you please these gods? You know, if, if you're, you're pregnant and you're, you're going to have a, a baby, how do you ensure that it's a boy or a girl? Or how do you ensure it lives? Because most babies didn't live. You know, some, some woman would have 20, 30 children, and they'd have one child to survive. So how do you ensure that your child is going to survive? Because we've kind of figured out how to get pregnant, right? That was the fun part, um, right? We figured that out, but we don't know how we make it okay. Because sometimes it comes and it's healthy, and other times it's not. How do we fix this, right? I mean, we're talking real issues here that people had, and they don't have answers. They don't know. We've got, we had the issues 100 years ago. We had massive amounts of like, um, uh, deaths and things like that in childbirth just because we didn't know how to wash our hands. I mean, we're talking not even a long time ago, just over 100 years ago, okay? So you imagine several thousand years ago. These are, these are real issues. And so can you imagine how invested you are in having, I want my child to live. Like, that's a, that's a big one. You bet your butt I'm gonna to pray to the fertility god or the god of life or the whatever it is, you know. But what are my prayers? I mean, how do they work? Because, you know, we have hindsight, we're looking back and going, You're praying to nothing. Right? There isn't a God of childbirth or a god of fertility or a god of family or well, there is, he's called God, Jesus, right? But there's they no concept for what they're doing, and so how do you please this God? Because sometimes you pray, um, and it goes well. But other times you pray, and it doesn't. So it, does, it doesn't. It seems a bit hit and miss, right? Are we are we really getting our, the answers, and what, what's going on here? And then you think, well, maybe if we offer some sacrifices okay so we'll, we'll offer some sacrifice maybe we'll burn some grain or you know or do something like that so so they, they get a pile of grain and they burn something very valuable to them food you know so they they offer up grain and the the, the the smell would go up to the heavens that's how they they thought offerings work you know you burn something and that makes the smell go up god goes oh it's great you can have a child now right i mean i don't know like weird gods um, really into their smells um so you burn a whole bunch of grain but what's the problem with that is if it works that's great right god heard our our prayers answered our sacrifices, great so what do you do next time if it worked you have to sacrifice if it doesn't work what do you have to do you have to sacrifice more and even so then let's say it works okay so say you have a healthy child and then you have a a, another pregnancy so you get all the grain again and you burn it and because you're praying to nothing, it doesn't work this time. Okay? So what do you do? do you, oh, God wasn't happy with this sacrifice, but it was the same sacrifice as last time. So what's going on? And what happened is people got themselves into this awful cyclical event, which just went round and round and round, where you're just constantly upping your sacrifice more and more and more. Because if it worked, you had to offer more the next time. If it didn't work, well, you didn't offer enough, so offer more. And so people would just get, start sacrificing more and more, so they'd sacrifice more and more grain, and they'd go, actually, grain is rubbish. Let's sacrifice something really valuable. Let's sacrifice a, a sheep, you know, and they would sacrifice a sheep, and then, but then maybe that worked, or maybe it didn't work, but either way, next time, we have to offer more, and so they should offer, or, let's, let's sacrifice a cow, and so they'd sacrifice something really valuable. And, oh, my gosh, that, that worked or didn't work? Well, next time, we, we offer a bull, you know, something really sad. And before you know it, and this is interesting. We can, we can actually track this um, archaeologically throughout most of the known world. So whether it's Asia, Africa, um, South America, North America, pretty much most of the known world eventually got themselves into this cycle and it ends in one location. What would they end up sacrificing that was the most valuable to them? Their firstborn. They'd start sacrificing children. They'd start fighting other people's children. Then they'd go, well, that's not as valuable as my children. And eventually, well, what was the most valuable thing to me was my firstborn child. That's the most important thing to me, my inheritance, my whatever. And, and, and so we see throughout the known world, we've, we've got archaeological records of people sacrificing small babies, children. Human sacrifice was very common throughout history, and it was because of this primarily. How do we offer up the most valuable thing to us? We are the most valuable thing to us. So this is where Abraham lives. Abraham lives in crazy sacrificial central, okay? And everyone has their own gods. And and what happened is despite there being many, many gods, you you had to pick your most high gods. You know, you have to pick a primary gods because if you're going to sacrifice your firstborn, you can only give them to one of the gods. Which one is it? So if you're a, a farmer, it might be something like, you know, the God of rain or sun or something like that. But if you, um, I don't know, if you're a, a blacksmith, it might be the God of fire or I don't know. Like, you, but everyone would figure out what was their most important God that made the biggest impact on their lives. And, and they would pick these, um, these things. And, uh, and so Abraham, it's really interesting. When God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm calling you away from these people. I want you to leave your father's gods. I want you to follow me. I want to be your most high God. You know what's really interesting about that? God uses his language. He says, I want to be your most high God. He doesn't say, I'm the only God that exists. I want to be the only God. He says, I want to be your most high God. I want to be your primary God. It's really interesting to me. We, we don't see that because we read the Bible with our monotheistic view. But God is coming to someone that believes in many gods and uses his language. and says, come with me. I'm going to be your most high God. And he promises him all sorts of things. He says, I'll give you many children. And, you know, it's all this great blessings. And the nations will be blessed because of you. So he he lures him in. But he never at any point says, I'm the only God. In fact, do you know that God is one of many gods until Exodus? The first time God becomes a monotheistic God as he deals with people is with Moses at the burning bush. It's the first time he identifies himself as a sole individual God. There are no other gods. It's a long time. That's a long, long time that God just goes, all right, I'll work with you guys and what you think. So long as you think I'm the biggest and best God, that's fine. And that amazes me. It goes to show an incredible security that God has about himself. (laughs) Um, In fact, most of the names of God in the Old Testament are copies of other pagan names. A lot of our El Shaddai and Jehovah this, Jehovah that, they're, they're, they're copies of Babylonian gods, mesopotamian gods you know gods that the canaanites had which is fascinating so god even allows himself to be called these these uh pagan gods names which is really very interesting okay but and and we'll talk about that a little bit but what fascinates me most is so abraham is called away from his the city away from these people and, and god says look come with me and he says come with me west which is really interesting right because when they leave the garden they, they head east, right? Everyone comes out of the garden, heads east, and they, they go east. And every mention of direction in Genesis is that they had that one way. So all the way through Genesis, we see them heading one direction until they settle in their cities and things like that. And God says, come with me and come west. And he says, come back the way you came. Come back away from all of this, all these, um, this way of doing life, away from your, your father's gods, so all this religion. Come with me, and I'll be your most high God so Abraham follows him, and what's really interesting is Abraham goes through his different things, and we talked about that, right, the great man of faith who's screwed up every three minutes, you know, like, um, Abraham goes through all the ups and downs, and everything. Now, eventually he, he has um, is, uh, Israel, he has um, Ishmael, you know, his, um, his illegitimate uh, dodgy child, and then after a while, you know, he does all that, and then he goes, all right, now we've got Isaac, you know, got your, got your child, finally, promised child and now you're going to have your promise of your descendants being as multitudes you know all that different stuff great wonderful and so what does god say to him god says abraham i want you to kill your son i want you to sacrifice your son to me have you ever thought this story is so messed up right i mean it's really messed up it doesn't really matter what you think about the story it's messed up right but what fascinates me more than God asking him to sacrifice his son, and it's always confused me, is that Abraham's like, okay. I just, he doesn't ask when, he doesn't ask where, he doesn't ask how. He's just is like, all right, okay. And he goes off to do it. I'm like, what? That, that's startling to me. But actually, now I've given you all this context, does it make sense? Because Abraham comes from a culture where your most high God requires your firstborn son. Duh. of course i have to kill this um isaac that's what god requires the gods require your firstborn that's what they need so he's he's not wondering where because he's lived in his entire life with people going to a mountain to sacrifice their kids he doesn't ask how because he he's he knows that's how you do it he doesn't ask why because He knows that's what God's require. Why would my most high God be any different from every other most high God? And in this, again, we see this polemic nature of Genesis, this this contrasting nature that messes with us. Because all the readers of this story are of that background. They're of this understanding of this is what gods are like. And so they're reading this story and they're reading along going, yeah, okay, here, I knew that was coming, right? And as the story progresses, they get up to him and, and, and Isaac's like, hey, who's the sacrifice, right? Because we have to remember, Isaac wasn't brought up in that culture to some degree. I'm sure Abraham probably did, in some degree, incorporate some of the weirdness of where he came from. But Isaac's going up and going, where's the sacrifice? And eventually, Isaac kind of twigs. Oh, I'm the sacrifice, right? Um, and what makes it very interesting, actually, is Isaac's a grown man by this point. He's probably at the youngest, about 25, could be as much as 35. Some scholars like him to be 33. I, I don't know if we can just pick an age. But like, the, the point is, right because it has a beautiful Christ-like uh, element to that, right? Offering up your son at 33. And, yeah. But the, the, the simple fact of the matter is he's 25 to 35, that kind of age bracket, okay? which makes um, Abraham at least 130. Okay? So Abraham is a 130-year-old man, and he's going to sacrifice his son, who's 25, 35, do you think Abraham can force Isaac to do this? Do you think Abraham can overpower him and fight him? I don't know any 130-year-old people who'll stop, but I don't know any like, 50-year-olds that are going to overpower you know, 25-year-olds. I mean, like, it's just unlikely, isn't it? And that actually adds a really amazing element of Isaac laying down his life. I mean, it really is a very Christ-like portrayal where his father says, we need to sacrifice you, and he's apparently okay with that on some level however okay you can be with that but what's interesting is is this whole charade goes on and on and on isaac um is laying there onto the on the altar or whatever they've established built probably with some stones and abraham's about to stab him and god intervenes doesn't he and he provides a ram and and i think for me this whole story is never a story about God will ask you really hard things. You just have to just, by faith, just trust he's going to do something good. Or, or any. That's not the story at all. The story is a story for Abraham. It's a story for the people that are reading this text for the first time. It's a story for the people that are hearing this text for the first time, which says, don't presume I'm like the other gods. I'm nothing like the other gods. That's the, the powerful message of Abraham and Isaac on that mountain is God saying, I am not going to reg- require this sacrificial, messed up system from you. I'm the God that gives and provides rather than demands. I don't demand a sacrifice from you. I provide a sacrifice for you. That's amazing to me, you know? And actually sacrifice as a whole is, a, is an amazing story because we see sacrifices so fundamentally um, central to humanity um, throughout this historical period. You know, we have such a mimetic culture that we require scapegoats, we require sacrifice. Even in today, we require, you look even in churches, we see scapegoats and, and sacrifice all the time. It doesn't look like as stabbing people and burning them on an altar, but we require scapegoats and we use them all the time. Um, but what we see is because that is so ingrained in humankind and, and nature in that, God works with them where they are. And, and we can see actually an evolution in sacrifice so we see sacrifices required we see god saying okay sacrifice your son and then going, i'm nothing like that here's a here's a ram sacrifice a ram instead but then as time goes on we see um the sacrifices that are put in the laws okay so there's five sacrifices required in the laws which all seem pretty messed up you know like burning pigeons and grains and like i mean who even finds like doves like wait how do you go about Like, you know, can you imagine God said, all right, I just require one thing from you this year, Sam. You're to kill a dove and burn it. And you're like, where the heck am I going to find a dove? Like, right? Especially if you're living in the desert, right? I mean, like, did doves happen much? Or even, have you ever thought about this? One of my favorite requirements on them building the the, the, the temple, uh, not temple, the um, tabernacle, the the portable temple they had, okay? One of my favorite requirements. Do you know what the walls are made of? Dolphin skin. They're in the desert. I'm like, (laughs) does anyone go, did he say dolphin skin you know they're like oh, we can do the gold we got of out from israel we got this and dolphin skin they're sitting there going where are we going to get dolphin skin from right i don't know sometimes i'm just like what is happening here right but anyway okay that's a completely weird side point okay um <laughs> i just love the bible sometimes i'm just like what's happening here i like to put myself in the skin and just go no and no, no um, but so we've got the sacrifices in the law but again so one thing that's really fascinating about the law, again, is this polemic nature. Did you know that the laws that God gave us through Moses are basically an exact copy of the current laws that exist in that culture? So that the cultures um, of the, the people around them, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, all these different people, um, the Egyptians, they already had pretty solid laws. And actually, our laws, the laws that God gave us um, in uh, Numbers and Leviticus, they're pretty much an exact copy of the laws that already existed in these cultures, the Mesopotamian cultures. There's a few tweaks here and there, though. And that is what makes our laws special. And so what's really fascinating is there already are many laws that say, you know, don't kill, don't cheat, don't lie, you know, all these things. But there's slight, subtle differences that make a world of difference. And again, we see God's coming in and being polemic. He's working with people where they are. He's not moving them 10,000 miles in one day. He's saying, okay, let's just take a step in the right direction. And so we see things like um, an eye for an eye. You like that, that, that passage, right? You gouged anyone's eye out recently? No, <laughs> right? That's, that's the law, okay? So if someone causes you to lose an eye, you gouge their eye out. Nice, good one, God. That seems really nice, right? I mean, that's God, though. That's his, that's his law. That's what he wants. And that sounds really... Um, It sounds archaic. It sounds brutal. It sounds uh, very ungracious, very unloving, right? Not very forgiving, right? If we're honest, I mean, right? Would you agree? That's a pretty archaic response to someone, I don't know, tripped and caused you to lose your eye, or I don't know. Um, It's it's a very um, interesting response. But if we look at the current law of the day that already existed, there was already a law that used this example, someone causing you to lose an eye, okay? And so it said, if someone causes you to lose an eye, what you're to do is to evaluate who they are first. And if they are less than you, you're to kill them. It's a lot worse than an eye for an eye. If they are on the same social standing, so the same kind of tier, you're to take their eye from them. But if they're better than you, you're to ask them to pay you for your eye. Right? And that's, that's, that's the thing. It's, it's kind of a bit like um, the caste system in India or something, you know, where you've got people that are just absolutely brilliant, you know, not so great, and then they're completely untouchables. And, and that was actually the law in those days was you had people of these different standards, and based on it, some people was like, oh, sorry, I killed your son. Here's some money for him. Other people, it was like, oh, sorry, I stood on your toe. I'm going to die now. You know what I mean? Like, it was like a pretty big stretch of like depending on where you stood on the system. And God comes along and introduces a law. It's very simple It's very short. If a man causes you to lose your eye, you're to take his eye. And what's he saying in this? I think he's talking much less about actually the practicalities of, all right, everyone loses eyes. You know, eye, 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 eye. I think he's basically saying, look, treat each other like equals. There is no high caste that is not answerable to anyone. And there's no low caste that doesn't matter. You can just kill them. You treat each other as equals. And in matters of the law where someone causes you to lose something, you treat them as an equal and expect fair recompense. So there's this element, and you know, I'm not saying he didn't say gouge our eyes or anything. I'm, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there's this step away from the current law. He uses the current law to move people into a more gracious, more understanding, a, a more equal, a more healthy way. Look at slavery. The slavery laws in our Old Testament are messed up, right? We talked about yesterday, you know, how we use the Bible to to um, to validate some really messed up stuff in history, right? Most of our slavery throughout history in, in the Christian uh, eras, you know, so the last kind of 1,000, 2,000 years, most of our slavery has been backed up using the Bible. And it's pretty messed up, right? But actually, if we, again, we go into the context and we look at the passages on slavery, we read them 2,000 years later, or three, four thousand, five thousand, six thousand 5,000, 6,000 years later, we read these slavery passages and go, this is messed up right i mean that's not okay you can't treat a slave you shouldn't even have a slave you know there's no slaves right but when we look at it in the context of the current slavery laws and then we see god coming along and going this is how you treat a slave god's going look if i just take everyone's slaves away from this whole thing's going to fall apart they're not going to follow me you know whatever i don't know why he doesn't just completely eradicate it overnight but what he does is he moves them away from their archaic really brutal slavery laws and brings them into a humane slavery law. And in time, we see an evolution where slavery is eventually done away with. And actually, the forerunners of getting rid of slavery, you know, we look at William Wilberforce, people like that, they're great, amazing Christian men, you know? And so God is working out that process. We look at the eye for an eye. Well, eventually, Jesus comes along. What did he say? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye. I think that's the funniest phrase possibly in the Bible. Jesus is going... You've probably heard it somewhere, an eye for an eye. And it's like, yeah, Jesus, that Bible that God gave us and he said an eye for an eye. You said that, Jesus. You said an eye for an eye, right? If we stop and think about it, Jesus said an eye for an eye when he gave us those laws. And Jesus is like, you've heard it said an eye for an eye. Well, that's wrong. And you're like, do we say something here? This is Jesus, it's God. He's the one that said it. We'll just let it slide. Where's he going? And he's like, no, I'm saying turn the other cheek. And so we see again. God moving in a direction. And so why am I saying all these different things? You know, so sacrifice, and we've got these archaic, brutal, disgusting sacrifices. But actually, compared to the sacrifices that were happening, killing your kids, it's not bad. I'll kill some doves all day if it means I don't have to kill kids, you know? I mean that's a really, really reasonable option, you know. And but then we see a progression even further. David says, God doesn't want sacrifice, he wants obedience. Which is a bit problematic because to obey God, we have to sacrifice, right? Because that was in the law. <laughs> but anyway, he, but his point is God's not looking for sacrifices. And this is the guy that sacrificed thousands and thousands of cattle just coming home. Every six feet, he killed a cow. I mean, walking, I think it was like 10 miles or something. Can you imagine? That's a lot of cows, right? So this guy likes sacrifice or something. I don't know. I, mean, I can't imagine not liking sacrifice and doing that. I, I, I feel sick at the thought of this because it's not a pretty process, sacrificing. Um, so this guy, he he did this, but he's like God doesn't want that. He wants obedience. Jeremiah comes along and says God has never wanted sacrifice. Hold on, Jeremiah. Um do you have a copy of the Bible? Can I give you a copy? Uh, it sounds like you've never read the Bible because he, he he says he wants sacrifice here and here and here. And here and here and here and here. here, here. <laughs> And Jeremiah's like, God has never wanted sacrifice. Hosea comes along and says, God does not want sacrifice. And there's coming a day there never will be sacrifices again. And you're like, okay, Hosea, ah. And again, we we have this approach to Scripture that is so different to the Jews. You see, the Jews approach Scripture, and we talked about this again, I think, on Tuesday a little bit. They approach Scripture as an ongoing discussion between man and God. Uh, a, A record of the journey that God takes them on but also a dialogue and a discussion about God from man and what is God saying? What is God doing? What is God meaning? And we talked about the, the editorial nature of, um, of people, you know, in, in trying to understand God. So we looked at 1st, um, 2nd Kings and then 1st and 2nd Chronicles and 1st and 2nd Samuel. And we look at the, the four books that are written before Um, They're taken away and, and sent into exile in Babylon. They talk about how important Israel is as a nation, how the 12 tribes are really important, how the lineage of David is so important, and all this different stuff. We'll have a Messiah from this lineage. And then you look at the two passages that are written during the exile and coming out of the exile. They talk about, well, actually, it's not that important that we have all 12 tribes involved. Why? Because during the exile, a good chunk of the tribes were killed. It's not that important that it's a direct descendant from David. Why? Because all the direct descendants were brutally murdered so they could wipe out that line, right? So, so what they do is they rewrite history. It's the same period. So you look at First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, they're the same stories. But you ever notice there's slight differences? And one is we presume everything to be about us and the king and, and Israel. It's all about this. And the second set of stories, they're the same stories, but they go, what if when God said this, he meant this and we just got it wrong and actually we see not that they're changing what god said but they're going we probably misheard and misapplied his prophecies and what if he meant this what if it looked like this and the stories are tweaked to take an importance off of um israel and onto god and so we see these differences in stories that a lot of um theologians that hold to every word in the bible is a direct exact thing well it's really tr- problematic when you have stories that are different the same story about the same event with different numbers or different people that's a real problematic element but if you understand well actually yeah everything's true everything's good everything's for us everything teaches us god gives us it all but actually we can see this nature of man going well we probably messed up on some of these prophecies and here's us reattempting to evaluate these prophecies and we see um so what we see is throughout the bible we see the jews constantly evaluating have we really heard God right so this is what jeremiah is doing we say god has never wanted us to sacrifice and everyone's going but we've got all these passages and all this history where god asks us to sacrifice And he's like yeah but did we really understand god then and then jesus comes on and goes no you didn't <laughs> right <laughs> and, and so jeremiah was right <laughs> but and so i think it's really important that when we when we turn to the scriptures we see it as an ongoing journey an ongoing unfolding story The God in Genesis and Exodus is not the same God towards the end of the Old Testament because he's the same God, but we understand him more. We've seen more of his goodness. We've seen more of his acts. We've been corrected a few hundred million thousand times, you know. Um, And so we've gone on a journey of learning more and more and more of God. And certainly we finally see God in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect representation of the invisible God that invisible God that we're left guessing about the whole time. Finally, in Jesus, we see it. You know, I think of, the way I like to see the Old Testament, okay, is so the Old Testament is true, it's good, it's perfect, it's holy, it's really helpful for us to learn and grow. I love it. I find it fascinating. It's really interesting. Great book to study and, and look at. Imagine I opened up a jigsaw puzzle, you know, 500-piece jigsaw puzzle. Okay, well, let's make it a bit more reasonable. 100-piece jigsaw puzzle, okay? So 100 pieces. And I gave each of you one piece at random, okay? So what's that? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven pieces, okay? And we, you each got seven pieces. And I said, describe to me what you think the jigsaw looks like. And you've got one piece, okay? You look at that piece and you go, there's water? <laughs> it's a lake. You know, I, I don't know. Like, how am I going to tell, right? But then I said, okay, well, why don't you all talk to one another and show each other your pieces and then tell me. And someone can go, oh, well, there's water, but I've actually got, like, frothy water. Maybe there's a waterfall or something flowing into something or maybe it's a sea or, and then someone goes well actually i've got like what looks like a sign or something so maybe like a building or a signpost or you know and so i've got people you know and so all of a sudden i'm like now you have a bit more information you probably wouldn't be able to draw the picture you know if i asked you okay now i want you all to draw a picture of what you think all your drawings would be similar perhaps based on seven random pieces and they might even be close they may are they probably would be very close at all but you know i mean they they might actually incorporate some of the elements but the simple fact of the matter is you're not going to give me an exact picture of that jigsaw and what we see throughout the old testament is individuals connecting to god having an experience of god god revealing to him to them where they are where they are right then and we we fail to see that where people are is extremely important in that unfolding story I've, there's a guy I know, he's a missionary to Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is a fascinating place, okay? Papua New Guinea is this um, collection of um, islands, and there's about 6,000 tribes that live on Papua New Guinea. And they all speak their own languages. They're all very, very, um, very backwards um, in their civilization, okay? Um, they have really crazy rituals. It's one of the, the it's, I think it is the highest concentration of cannibalism in the world, is Papua New Guinea, because a lot of the tribes still eat people. Um, they certainly kill people on sight. You know, you show up to one of their tribes, they're just going to kill you. Not even gonna, they don't even care. Like, just like, oh, we'll just kill this guy. Who cares, right? I mean, they kill their own people. In fact, one of the the guy told me these stories, and I was laughing. It's really messed up, but it's really funny. <laughs> okay, don't judge me. Okay, podcast people, I'm not like this. I promise. Okay. And <laughs> um, so, one of the things they do is that ev- or, and not all of the tribes, but a lot of these tribes, they have. Um, this, uh, this philosophy that you must always have worth to exist in the tribe. If you're not contributing to the tribe, you're dead to them, and frequently that means we kill you, um, okay? So when you're a child, you have to do something. You'll clean things or you'll do something. When you grow up a little bit more, maybe you're, you're child-rearing, but you also have to collect water. You have to do this, and then you grow up a little bit more, um, and you uh, you have to, you know, hunt, or you have to make clothes, and you grow up a little bit more. And as you get older and older and older, there's less you can do. So the really old people can do a few bits and pieces. They can't really walk around much, and they get a bit frail. And eventually they get to the point where, you know, they've got arthritis in their bones. They can't, you know, sew or something. And they basically become useless. They don't contribute anymore. So what do they do? They pick up the old people, and they throw them in the river. <laughs> like, can you get anything more ridiculous? It's absolutely awful, but actually, like, what what is this culture like what a fascinating but they, they're just like well this why would this old person want to live they, they can't contribute so we'll just throw them in the river and, and off the river they go um but so i mean we're talking very backwards here okay so this is the kind of culture where lots of weird gods and lots of really dodgy um cultural practices and this guy is a missionary there okay like did anyone want that job Right? Where they kill everyone, they eat people, they throw you in the river if you don't contribute. I'm like, yeah, why don't you send someone else, God? I'll be the missionary to Fiji, or, you know, like, like, that's where I want to be called. Um, But he does, he goes there, and he's worked with, uh, I think, two tribes now, but one tribe that he worked with for an extremely long time, apparently, for the first year or two, he couldn't even go near them. He had to just, he would send care packages over a river, okay? He would just send things he thought they might need or want over the river, and he had to do it over the river because their arrows couldn't reach that far because they would like they're getting free stuff from him and they're still trying to kill him you know i mean this is just like how violent they are and he's like no i want to go after this and they're really hard but i'm gonna go after it and eventually it gets to the point where they they, they stop firing arrows and he's like oh, you know maybe they're they're getting on they're catching on I'm a, I'm a nice guy i'm good right and he slowly works his way into the tribe and over years and years and years he develops a bit of friendship. Um, he, he contributes, he, he gets involved, he goes on hunts with them, he, he does all sorts of things, um, he starts to learn their language so he can talk to them a bit more. But he said it was about 10 years before he mentioned Jesus. 10 years of watching them cannibalize, throwing grannies in the river, <laughs> um, killing people, going to war with other tribes, because if he said anything, he'd be the next person in the pot, right? I mean, they'd eat him, or they'd throw him in the river, or they'd kill him. And he thought, how can I just work with them where they are to make sure they get where they're going? And now it's a completely Christian tribe. It's one of the few Christian tribes in in Papua New Guinea, which is amazing. Um, Why do I say that? I don't think that's too unlike us and God. When I read through the Old Testament, I see us doing the same thing. I see us firing arrows at God the whole time. I see us going, we don't want your goodness. We don't want this. We want sacrifice. We want pagan religion. We want idols. And we constantly see this. Because this, have you ever read the Old Testament and just think, what is wrong with these people? God is good. And they keep going back to f- wrong gods or they keep making idols. They, like, do you ever read it and just think, are these guys idiots? But when you understand, well, that's where they come from. They, they were people that worshipped idols. They were people that had many religions and many gods. And, and so it actually, you start to have a little bit of grace for them. You know, I used to think, oh my gosh, these people are idiots. If I was in that situation, I wouldn't. But I wouldn't be in that situation with who I am. I'd be in that situation with who they are. And they, they had a concept of many gods. They had a, you know, when God disappears for 40 days with Moses and they make a calf, you can kind of understand. Your God's gone. You might as well go for one of the other gods. But God works with them in a missional way. He comes to them and goes, where are you at? What can I, what can I, how can I bring you forward? You're not ready to stop eating people? Okay, well, let's just move a little bit forward, you know? Um, and, and I think that's what God does with us, right? You're not ready to give up your sacrifices? Okay, well, let's just stop killing the babies. Let's move on to like just animals or something, right? And so he's moving them away from Barbara. You're not ready to give up your slaves? Well, why don't we at least treat the slaves well? You know, and he's, he's moving people towards him. And this is why when we read through the Old Testament, we can see an unfolding of God. We can see God becoming more good, more gracious, more kind. God isn't becoming these things. We're starting to see who he really is. And so it's really important that when we read these, um, these e- elements of God in the Old Testament, we understand I'm turning to this passage in Judges, and I open it up and I point my finger to it and go, oh, yeah, this is what God did. This is what God said. This is how he acts. What I'm doing is I'm holding a jigsaw piece and I'm trying to make the picture in my mind. And it's really dangerous because I have one jigsaw piece in my hand. And I should certainly try and read a few more jigsaw pieces before I draw a conclusion. And what I love about it is God doesn't leave us in mystery. God doesn't leave us in this discussion of going, who is God? What is he really like? Because God shows up. He becomes a person. He shows up and goes, this is who I am. You want to know who my father is. I am Jesus. I am God. That invisible God you have, I am the image of the invisible God. And Jesus basically comes on the scene and just goes, here's the box cover for your jigsaw. You don't have to guess. And all of a sudden, everyone with all their pieces and everyone's fighting about, oh, well, God's like this, but he's like this, but he's like this. They all go, oh yeah, all these pieces fit. And I just have my picture completely wrong. I had the pieces in the wrong place. It's so important that when we turn to the uh, when we turn to the Old Testament, the the, the older uh, depictions of who God is, that we recognize, yes, this is God given. This is good. This is healthy. This is really helpful for us. It, it leads us into all righteousness and 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 helps us grow and learn. But we need to look at all these jigsaw pieces with the box because if we don't look at the box we don't know where to put these pieces and if we just start putting pieces down randomly we're gonna have a messed up god and man do we have a messed up god when we do that because we can just look at a good portion of christianity a good portion of christianity goes to scripture and opens up and goes. no matter what page i open this on it is exactly as relevant and as applicable as jesus and i tell you what that is absolutely not true It is absolutely true. It's absolutely helpful for us. It's absolutely, um, God will speak through it, absolutely. But if we read it without the words of Jesus, without the person of Jesus, without the revelation of who God really, truly is, with no uh, misunderstanding, absolutely, in the flesh, this is God. If we we have to elevate this to be in the same place, then we have conflict, don't we? Because there are things, you know what I mean? What do you do with a God that says, I want you to go into that uh, city and kill every man, woman, and child, and then all the animals? What do you do with that? I I personally don't actually know what to do with it. I've got some theories, but I don't know. Because here's my challenge to you, right? Because that's what God says. So God gives you the promised land and he says, right, you're going to go into the promised land and it's going to be given to you. It's going to be amazing. You're not going to lose anyone in the battles and the war, but you just, you're going to kill every single person, all the, all the men, all the women, all the children, and you're going to have this city. And it's going to be your own city and you're going to get the land and all the crops and everything It's going to be yours. It's going to be great. Get all the cattle, everything for free. Or you're going to kill the cattle, but whatever, right? So you get all this stuff for free. And so you go, right, great, yes, God's given me this promise. You get your sword out. You go to war and you fight the war. You kill all the men from that city that come to fight you and protect their city, protect their loved ones. You kill them all. And all the young men that are fighting in the war, you kill them all, these teenage boys. And you get into the city, right? And now it's time to pick out your new house. And so you go into the first house you see, and you're like, yeah, it's not, not, not bad. Three bedroom, ensuite. suite, you know, it's very nice. Two public rooms. And, um, you know, oh, pool in the back. That's very nice. That'll be lovely on the hot Israel days, Uh, right? So you you pick up a lovely house. So you walk up the stairs and and you open one of the bedroom doors and in there is a pregnant 19-year-old girl and a three-year-old boy. What do you do? What did God ask you to do? Kill them all with a big grin on your face because that's what God told you to do. It's God's commandment. This is God's blessing to you. This is God's promise to you you pull out your sword right and you go kill them because they're evil right they're the evil awful canaanites that young 19 year old girl is deeply evil i'm sure maybe she is i don't know that three-year-old is probably definitely evil most three-year-olds i know evil that unborn baby though gosh that one is especially evil very very evil god was the first abortionist apparently These are evil, terrible people that have to be wiped out. <sighs> makes you uncomfortable, right? This isn't your Bible. This is what they had to do. And you know what makes me more uncomfortable? I imagine myself in that position and I think, okay, that's what God told me to do. That's the time, the culture, whatever. Imagine Jesus walks into that room, sits down on the bed. He's just sitting there watching you. As you were, Phil. How comfortable do you feel killing this young girl? Unborn baby, the little toddler. Do you see Jesus sitting on the back, going, yeah, woo, murder. It's not murder, it's killing because God asked you to do it. It's uncomfortable, right? What do you do with these passages? Anyone got any ideas? It's awkward, right? But what I do know, Jesus wouldn't ask me to do that. The only time, only time we see the disciples question Jesus on, 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 on punishing a city or people and pouring out fire on them. right? It's really fascinating. You think of um, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? How did God deal with Sodom and Gomorrah because they're so evil, right? What did he do? He called them fire, right? And destroyed the entire city. That was God. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus goes to the city, they don't like him, they kick him out, so he leaves. And his disciples go, God, Jesus, should we call down fire and destroy that city because they're so evil? What does Jesus say? You don't know what spirit you're speaking about. You don't know what spirit you're of. Calling down fire on a city is not God. Question. <laughs> You, you did that before it was God. I don't know what to do with that stuff. But what I know is Jesus has given me a definitive answer that says God does not call down fire on cities because people are not good because they don't accept him. I don't know what I do with God telling the Israelites, go kill every single man, woman, and child in this entire land. I killed their animals too. Like, crying out loud. But I mean, it gets a bit ridiculous at that point. You're killing like sheep and goats and stuff just because God said. Like, I mean, I'm like, oh, God said, do it. Absolutely. But I'm like, but at some point, some of these guys are like, you know, they've, they've just killed hundreds of kids. And now they're on to killing the animals. They've got to be at least on some level going, is this a God I want to worship? Is this good? And this is the best God there is. Like Of all the gods, this is the best one. And we're killing children. Like, Oh, what is going on and then you have jesus show up and say no don't kill never kill if you get angry that's bad enough like don't take an eye for an eye turn the other cheek let people abuse you before you hurt them and it's like are you the same guy that killed everyone <laughs> like are you the same god of genocides? like what's going on I don't have an answer for you. I'm going to let you just stew on that and think about that. But, uh, but I do want you to be challenged. Do I, do I have a view of God based on a jigsaw puzzle piece that trumps the box that is more important to me than what Jesus reveals the clear picture of God to be? When Jesus says, I've come to reveal the Father, nobody's seen the Father except me. He says, here. Think about that. Nobody has seen the Father except me. Uh, John 1, 18, I think, maybe 16, says, nobody has seen the Father except Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? That's a stupid statement, isn't it? Right? Because loads of people saw the Father before Jesus. Right? Adam and Eve saw him. Enoch saw him. Elijah saw him. uh, Isaiah saw him. Uh, Samson's parents saw him uh in numbers it talks about how moses met with god face to face and then again after that Numbers 27 it says moses and all the the elders like 72 elders saw god face to face it says um so lots of people have seen god so what's john smoking right when he goes nobody has seen the father and you're like well john loads of people saw the father again do do these guys have bibles right and actually, the answer is no. Most people don't have Bibles at that time, right? They have to memorize scripture and go to the temple to, or the synagogue to read. Um, but you've got to question sometimes. You're just like, loads of people saw God. Why are you saying no one's seen God? And I think he's highlighting this. He's saying, yeah, people saw God, but they really didn't see God. They brought their own. Perspectives, their own mindsets, their own agendas, their own biases, their own needs for slavery, for sacrifice, for whatever—and and God was never revealed perfectly and purely in the Old Testament's people, because people weren't perfect and pure in, in the way that they interpreted Him and communicated Him. And what we see is nobody has truly seen the Father except Jesus. And this is why Jesus comes and says, I've come to reveal my father. If you've seen me, you've seen my father. It says in Hebrews that Jesus is the perfect image of the invisible God. So for me, I want to study Jesus to my eyes believe. You know, I just, I want to know what God looks like. And if I'm going to build a picture of who God is, it's going to be based on Jesus and nothing else. And in that place, when I am so confident of who Jesus is, of who my God is, when I know that box cover for the jigsaw off by heart, then I want to readdress the scriptures. I want to go back and go, all right, let's look at God killing all the Canaanites. What is going on here? All right, let's look at this passage. What is going on here? But I'm not going to allow these pieces of the puzzle. To mess anything up, because once I know the box, I can probably pick that piece up and go, "Oh yeah, that goes here." I understand that. I can see God in that, and maybe some of the way it's described is warped. Is is it brings in the human element because God is dealing with humans. God is working with humans, and God concedes to humans. We talked about that the other day, right? I mean, God never wants to give the law, and people go, "Give us a law," and He goes, "All right, here's a law." God doesn't want a king, and they go, "Give us a king," and they're, all right, here have Saul. And so, how much does God concede? How much is God misconstrued? How much is God misunderstood? Because, to me, when we understand that the Bible is an ongoing, unfolding discussion between man and God, there's a lot of room in there to understand that whilst everything that's written there is given to us by God, it's good, it's true, it's pure, it's holy, It doesn't necessarily mean everything in there was God's perfect plan, will, idea, demonstration of who he is. Because it's not all about God. It's all about God and his people. And his people are messed up. And the beauty of it is we are messed up. We still go on this journey. We still have an unfolding revelation of God. You think of what you believed about God five years ago, ten years ago, two years ago, probably a month ago was probably messed up compared to what you believe today. And you know what? A month from now, you're probably going to look back and go, gosh, I was an idiot believing that. Because that's just growth. It's just learning. And, and we're constantly evolving in our understanding of who God is. He's consistently revealing who he is to us. And I think scripture is ultimately it's just a meta-narrative of that, isn't it? It's an overarching. We can look at scripture as God reveals himself to an imperfect people. And then we look at our lives and our whole life, when we look back on it, will be, God revealed himself to a very imperfect person. <laughs> and I think we have to keep that at the forefront of our minds when we, when, we, when we turn to the scriptures. Because it's really easy to read our own agendas, our own desires, our own misinterpretations into the Bible. And not only is it easy, it's what we want. We want to support what we believe. We want to support our prejudice. We want to support these um, these terrible things that we believe some of them. It's like I said yesterday, you know, there's two types of people that read the Bible. The person that reads the Bible with their own views, their own perspectives, and own ideas, and doesn't know it. And the person that reads their Bible with their own views, their own perspectives, their own ideas, and knows it. Whether you like it or not, you're going to read your own stuff into the Bible, and you're going to try and find your own stuff in the Bible. The only thing you can do is be aware of it. And if you're aware of it, you can question. So everything you read and you go, yeah, that totally makes sense, you can stop and take a step back and go, okay, does that make sense because I want it to? Or does it make sense because that's actually what it says? Constantly questioning yourself in the way that you approach Scripture. Let's do um, just, if anyone has any questions on that topic, um, we'll just do 15 minutes of that, and then uh, we can do proper Q&A after lunch. Yeah? Why was God... it's a good question i'll repeat it for the the mic but like where did god go and why did god go between adam and eve and then abraham when he shows up to him but i think it's important we recognize that as we read through genesis we do see god with people so i think one of the one of my favorite things that we can see in genesis is adam and eve screw up royally right i mean they just really mess up right they had one job to do and they just did the exact opposite but we talked about that as well and how much of that was a mistake and how much they were completely set up to fail in all fairness, you know, I mean. Um, but what I love about it is they're taken out of the garden and we often see that as this punishment, don't we? You know, like God's mad at them, he kicks them out of the garden, but actually he says, I'm taking you out of the garden to protect you. Because if you stay in the garden, you'll be lost in this situation forever. So he goes, I'm removing you from the garden and I'm protecting you from the garden. And so actually it's a blessing that he takes them out. But what what really encourages me about it is the next passage, the next story we have, is Cain and Abel. And who? It's not just Cain and Abel. Who else is in the story? God. So God takes them out of the garden, but God goes with them. And I love that. I love these stories that immediately after the garden, we see God with people. He's with Enoch. He's with, um, uh, yeah, whatever, all the crazy weird long names and all that but he's with all these people um, god doesn't go anywhere in one sense but what we do see is we see whilst there's always people that god is connecting with and and, and, and ministering to and being with we forget the, the the spread of humanity we forget that cities are being i mean like, we're talking like this is a, a, a long time between abraham and adam and eve i think we do a lot of damage when we add up the people and think, you know, okay, that's how much time or whatever. Because like we talked about when it says this person begat, this person begat doesn't mean son off. Or it, it technically does, but it doesn't mean like literal the son. It means from that lineage. So there could be people in between. There could, you know, so, so we don't know the time periods between these things. And, and so in this time period, in this, in this um, spread, I think it's a lot less about what is God doing. It's a lot more about what are we doing as humanity. And the, dis- the truth is, we are distancing ourselves from God. We are trying to do things our own strength. We are trying to find our own way. We are trying to find a, a different option, a different way, a different path. And we see that, I mean, Cain and Abel, the first two people on earth that aren't Adam and Eve, and already one of them is rebelling from God and trying to find his own path and his own way. Um, and so can you imagine that 10 generations later? Can you imagine that 20 generations? You know, it's, I mean, it, 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 we're, we're talking a massive multiplying effect. You've got that like um, you know, if two people had two people had two people, I mean, like we're talking thousands and thousands of people being born all throughout the world, um, or just in that area of the world, depending on your theology again. Um, but what we see is we see mankind distance itself from God, and so God comes in to that story. But He's been coming into that story even before Abraham and meeting with people. He met with, Enoch, you know, He met with these people, and and so. I think God's never not at work. And I think what, what I always kind of wonder about as well is you look at the Bible. Is the Bible the story of every person that God ever met in the Old Testament? You know what I mean? Of course not, right? And so, you know, we see these random people that just pop into the Bible just like, oh, and their name is mentioned. They had a whole story. And they had a whole family and their families had families and, you know, and, and, and they probably followed God and they probably interact with God and you got it. And so I think when we look at the old Testament, we forget it's a whole world. Um, and we talked about, you know, like people that go to like random islands that have never been reached for the gospel. We talked about yesterday, you know, like, and then they find out, oh my gosh, you believe in Jesus. What the heck? How did you do that? Like did a Bible wash up on shore and you magically read English? Like what's going on? And it's like, no, God just revealed himself and told us the story of the cross and we accepted it. And we're happy on this island. Do you want to live with this missionary? Do you want to go home and find somewhere else to go? Like, And you're like, wow. And it's like, that's the stuff that God does. He doesn't need us. You know, we talked about that Sadhu Sundar Singh he goes to kill himself and Jesus shows up in his room and goes, all right, hold on. Don't kill yourself, I'm Jesus. And he becomes an amazing missionary, one of the most uh, important missionaries for Tibet and that part of the world ever. Um, and so I think God is always active. God is always doing things. I think if anything that we take from that story, it's that we are always running um not maybe personally although i personally put my hand up and say i am constantly running (laughs) but we as humanity are constantly pulling away from god trying to do things in our own strength trying to 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 make our own way um and i think that's such a, a important story And in fact if you read um genesis again when we approach it as a mythological book and we understand that poetic nature of it as well there's so much um there's so much hatred for city building, power, structure, hierarchy, um, communities that aren't family orientated but are, 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 are revolve around cities and things like that. It, there's hatred for um, growing crops, <laughs> but there's uh, value placed on having cattle and, and raising cattle and just feeding off the lands as you find it and you go. And so, it's really got a very like nomadic. We live like this. Did, did you guys watch the Noah movie? Did anyone see that? A lot of Christians got really angry with it. I think it's probably one of the best portrayals of Genesis I've ever come across. It's astonishing. Now, they incorporate a lot of mythology that isn't in biblical mythology. They incorporate stuff from the Book of Enoch. You've got the Watchers and things like that, which actually Jewish people consider to be a very accurate history book um, But besides that. But they also incorporated stuff from the Epic of Gilgamesh and things like that as well. So it's not, I'm not saying it's, um, it's perfect or anything like that. But what I I find amazing about that book is that it really grabs a hold of the concepts of city building, of this um, power structures and going after hierarchy and power and stuff as being bad. And these are the bad people in the the story of Noah, the people that are really messed up. And and Noah and his family relentlessly love the earth. They they treasure the earth. They look after animals. They they just feed off the the, the ground just as, as... Food is brought around, and um, and so it's it's a really it, it covers a lot of those powerful motives that are in in Genesis. Um, and so I just think it's really important we, we look at these topics. Like I was saying yesterday, it challenges me when I read Genesis one. Genesis one could not be any clearer that we should be vegetarians. And the only place in the Bible that really concedes that we can eat meat is a concession, and it really struggle I struggle with it as well. Genesis um, is it seven, when when God says, "Okay, you can eat these types of animals." It's a concession. It's not God saying, I'm happy about it. He's saying, if you have to eat meat, only eat these ones. Like, and I'm just like, oh, but I like steak. I want bacon. I want food that's good. I don't want carrots and coleslaw, you know? Um, but when we read the scriptures for what it's saying, there's so much stuff in there that God is so clear. He's like, this is how I want, like, life to be, and I want it to be harmonious. And, um, but, yeah, but I think, so, again, what are we reading into Scripture? And for that, we often tend to read God is running away because that's how we feel. It makes us feel better if we think of God distancing himself. But actually, the story of Scripture is never God distancing himself because even when God chucks out of the garden, he walks along with us at the garden. He's like, right, you can't be in this garden. Come on, let's go. <laughs> but that's, that's the story of Genesis. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. And we see it all the way through the Old Testament. God's getting frustrated with us because we are the ones that are running, and He just keeps running after us. And when He catches up, we have a good time for a bit, and then we run away. And He catches up, and we run. You know, but the story of the Old Testament, if there is one, is that we don't want anything to do with God, and God is desperately, desperately wanting something to do with us. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's maybe a bit of mimetics there where we read what we think about ourselves, our own interpretation of God, or whatever into that um, sometimes. Sorry, I kind of think I've answered your question. Sorry. <laughs> um, is there another question or a thought on that topic? The Bible? Or how we see gold, God? Gold? God? My brain's stuck shutting down. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Like, I mean, it amazes me. I I often laugh because I think if like Jesus, you know, that was obviously the right time for him to come, and I'm like, we still killed him. I mean, like for crying out loud, how bad would it be if we came earlier? <laughs> like, you know what you're saying? Like, he probably wouldn't even start his ministry. We killed him like by the age of like, ten. He's, you know, when he visits the temple and he's wowing all the scholars at twelve or whatever, thirteen, whatever age he was. And I'm like, oh, we probably would have killed him then, wouldn't we? So because we were still incredibly intolerant, we weren't ready for the message. That's what amazes me. We we weren't ready, but we kind of were. Enough of us were that we took the world by storm. You know, I mean, the message just spread throughout the known world because we kind of, kind of were ready. But we also, at the same time, obviously weren't ready enough because we still killed (laughs) him. Like it just amazes me that Jesus comes with this message of goodness, grace, mercy, love, forgiveness, and we go, we want none of that, and we kill him. And you're just like. I guess we weren't listening to that message, you know? Um, Yeah, I think it's amazing. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny Podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.uk.